Isn't that a great story? I mean, I love a great story. The thing about a great story is that each person's life is a story. And the truth is, each person's life is like three stories. There's that part of your story that is about you. It's about what you're going through, what you're facing. It's about the present. It's about ups and downs, good times, bad times. It's your story. And that's super important, hearing that, feeling that, being seen, expressing that. Just so much of what this place is about. But there's a second aspect to your story. That is to say, your story as it impacts that which is around you. That is to say, there are those who've come before you, those who will come after you, those who are part of your family and your culture and your society and your business and, and your, your job and whatever. And, 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 and your story affects their story. And a lot of times what's going on in your life is about your story. And a lot of times what's going on in your life is actually about what God's going to do in someone else's story that affects you. And it's hard to see that. Now, now not only that, is there your story and then the story that's above your story, there's another story that is about that. This is the meta story. This is the ultimate story. This is the story of God. This is the story of God doing things and preparing things to impact things in ways that are surprising, amazing, and absolutely just uh, glorious. And, and having these perspectives about your life, that it has three aspects of a story, can help you make sense of the things that happen to you every day. One of the great problems, I would even say curses of our current culture, there's some advantage to this, but it's really become a curse, is that we live in a culture right now that is telling us that all that matters, is particularly true of, of the young, is your story, your right now. And, and it's, it's lost the connection that there's something greater than you that's come before you, that'll come after you, that is bigger than you, that is connected to God's story. And those are the things that are so important to find what life is meaningful, what makes life meaningful. So, so that's what the life of Joseph is all about, right? We've been in this story of the life of Joseph for several weeks now, and this is the last 13 chapters of the book of, 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 of Genesis. And, and I just got to tell you that when you study this from the perspective of Joseph's story, that there's Joseph's story and what happened to him, and then there's how it relates to his father and his brother and his ancestors and the nation that will come from his descendants and the descendants of his brothers, and then how you connect that with the ultimate meta story that began at the beginning of the book of Genesis that, that started with, with God making a promise that from humanity, eventually there would be a seed or a descendant or a generation, a person would be born through all this story that eventually that seed would be born and that, that person, that seed, that descendant would be a blessing to the whole world. And of course, spoiler alert, that person is Jesus. So there's this huge story going on and this big story going on. And then there's Joseph's story going on. And all of that is woven together in this most remarkable book, this literary masterpiece called Genesis. You know, one of the things we should do when we study the Bible, when we come to a story, we come to a little phrase, we come to a little detail, is to ask the question, why is that there? I mean, what's that for? Because the people who wrote the Bible were geniuses. They, they, they wove in literary devices to foreshadow, to predict, to look forward, to promise, sometimes promises that wouldn't be fulfilled for hundreds, even thousands of years. And all of that is woven in there to tell three stories at the same time. And we're going to see this in the, book of in the book of Genesis and the story of Joseph. So what we've been saying throughout this entire series on the life of Joseph is that it takes courage to heal. 
It takes courage to heal when you're on the path where you've been doing the right thing and you've been paying a price for doing the right thing and you have been seriously traumatized. And if there's anything that Joseph's life's about, it's about trauma, it's about mental health, it's about overcoming horrible things that happen to you. So, so it takes courage to heal, but here's the other side of it. We're gonna see today that it also takes courage to heal when you haven't been the person you should be, when you haven't walked the road of character, when you have taken shortcuts, when you are not a good person from whom good things naturally flow, and at some point you wake up and realize, I don't wanna be this way anymore. I wanna choose a different path, and we're gonna see that today. It takes courage and faith to challenge the family dysfunction we grew up in, that we've embraced, the chains that uh, Amanda said she wrapped herself around by choosing a healthier path, a better way, a way that leads to life and health and peace in God. It all starts with the story of Joseph. So let me just remind you a little bit about the story of Joseph. Joseph, this young man who grew up as the privileged son of a, of a wealthy guy who was favored, he was given this coat of many colors. Well, at 17, he got a dream. God gave him a dream that from him, a huge blessing is gonna come for his life, for the life of his family, for the whole world, that he was gonna be given authority and power and people are actually going to bow down to him. And when you're 17 and you get that kind of vision, it's something like this. When I'm in charge, it's going to be great because I'm going to be able to do whatever I want. I'm going to give whatever I want. I'm going to be able to tell people whatever I want them to do. It's going to be my way or the high. When you're 17, you think like that. When you're 17, listen now, you tend to think that being in charge is about privilege rather than responsibility. Let me just say that again. When you're young and foolish, and you have a dream, even if it's a good dream to do good things, when you think that when I'm in charge, it's going to be a position of privilege rather than a place of responsibility that's going to require of you a continual line of service and sacrifice. And that in that, we think privilege will make me happy. It'll be meaningful to be in charge. Where you find meaning is through service and sacrifice for something greater than yourself. Well, 17-year-old Joseph needed to learn this. Well, where did he learn this? He learned it through trauma. He learned it through pain. Because you know the story. We've been talking about the last couple of weeks. He, he has brothers who don't really jive with him. And so they grab him. They throw him in a pit. And they take his cloak. And they tell his father he's been killed. And then they sell him into slavery. So he goes from a place of privilege to a place of service and sacrifice, a place where he is pushed down. We know the story. What happened is he, he grew up in that and became head of the household of this guy named Potiphar, and he seemed to be doing the right things. He's learning all kinds of things about service and sacrifice. But then this thing happens where Potiphar's wife accuses him of doing something horrible he didn't do. Long story short, he gets thrown into prison. And in prison, he becomes the person who administrates the prison. He's the person who learns to take criticism. He's the person they put in charge because, listen now, he's becoming the kind of person other people can rely on. And so through the midst of this trauma, he's aware of God. He is choosing God. God is with him. He becomes in charge in the prison. And, and Ryan did a beautiful job unpacking this last week where he just showed how everything that he went through were lessons that he was going to need when ultimately he becomes the person who's actually in charge in Egypt. Well, long story short, he gets an opportunity. These two officials of Pharaoh come in. He helps one of them out. That puts him in a position to go before Pharaoh. Pharaoh rep recognizes the talent, recognizes the skills, as it were, and he says, we're going to put Joseph in charge. And after all of this trauma, he's the person who finally is in charge in a very difficult time to 
lead, where for seven years he's got to lead through seven years of prosperity. And believe it or not, it's often more difficult to lead in prosperity because it's amazing how easy it is for people to find a bad attitude when things are going great. It's just amazing. Okay, we will find some place to put our angst and our anxiety. And so for seven years, things are going great. And then the second seven years is going to be hard. And he's going to have to save during the first and administrate during the second. And it's going to be hard and thorny and difficult and service and sacrifice and intelligence. And the 17-year-old Joseph could have never handled that. But the 33-year-old Joseph, that's right, like 13, 15 years of going through stuff, before you are ever qualified, ready to receive and to live out the dream. The delayed gratifications, the price have to be paid. And at any time, he could have chosen dysfunction and brokenness. Well, well, this is the choice he made. Well, what ends up happening is he goes through the first seven years, administrates, and now the famine hits. So it's year two of the famine. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the other story, so there's Joseph's story, and then there's the bigger story of his family. His family is back home, and they're running out of food. Well, they hear there's food up in Egypt. And so the father said, I got 12 sons. I had 12 sons, one dead. He thinks Joseph's dead. Joseph's not dead, Okay. I'm going to send 10 of my sons up. I'm not going to send Benjamin because Benjamin, who is Joseph's brother by the same mother, because remember, all of these sons have different moms, complicated, messy situation. You should read the Bible. It would be an amazing miniseries. And so all this is going on. All this is going on, right? And so he's keeping Benjamin close to him because when he had Joseph, his, his, his favorite son, he'd send him all over the place. But he's been through trauma. He's lost a son. And so now Benjamin's not leaving the tent. Okay, and so now the 10 sons go up to Egypt and what ends up happening is Joseph is there administrating and all of a sudden he sees his 10 brothers roll in. Now here's the deal. He recognizes them, they don't recognize him because he's dressed as an Egyptian, he's supposed to be dead. There's no way this could possibly be Joseph. They don't have a, a sniff of a thought of an idea that this could actually be him. And indeed he speaks Egyptian, so he plays it. He speaks through an interpreter to his brothers, so they just think he's an Egyptian. And so the Bible says he handles them roughly. Because can you imagine Joseph running in? Because what happens is rediscovered trauma. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's the person who maybe grew up in a home with a parent who just caused a lot of trauma, and they live, and they grow, and they become better, and, and then all of a sudden they're taking care of the older parent, and that trauma comes back. It's the person who, when they were a kid, something hard happened to them, and then they see it happen to their kid, and the trauma comes back. It's the, the, the bully who was part of their life that's not part of their life, or then that bully comes back, or another bully comes, and all of a sudden, you're feeling things. In the midst of administrating all this complication, it just roars back in. That seems horrible and terrible and terrifying, and it is, but it's also God's invitation to grow to a level of, of drawing close to the trauma to be healed from the trauma. That's what Trauma Reboot is so much about. So Joseph's here, his brothers are there, right? And they're coming here, and the Bible says he handles them harshly. He says, we think you're spies. What are you doing? And he, he brings them into captivity three days, and he, and he takes them out, and he says, here's the deal. You can never come back here unless you bring your little brother back, okay? Because he's found out that his brother's there and his father's there, and he says, you can never return to Egypt. And so he, he sends him away, and he does this other thing, because here's what he's trying to figure out. He's trying to figure out, he's, he's, he's clever in this, he uses some of the sneakiness of his family in a healthy way, okay? Another sermon, another day, but God's even redeeming that. But here's the deal. He, he says to his brothers, um, don't come back with your sons. Don't come back with, oh, my younger brother, Benjamin. He doesn't call him that unless the younger one comes. He says, I'm going to keep one of your brothers here 
So, so as guaranteed, I'm going to send you back. And so he sends them back, but he puts the gold they brought back into their sack. So they're thinking, my gosh, we're undone. We can't go back. It's going to be dangerous to come back. How are we ever going to do this? And so he's testing whether or not they'll come back. And so sure enough, they go. They tell their father Jacob. Jacob says, what have you done? I lost another son. This is terrible. You're never going back there. And there's no way I'm going to send Benjamin. And then all of a sudden... You have this long story, time, and then it gets worse. And finally, Jacob uh, is just getting worse. And so what ends up happening, and this is super important, is his son Judah goes to him. Now, let me say a couple things about Judah. Because Judah is the redeemed in this story. Judah, at the beginning of this story, is a jerk. He's cruel. He's selfish. He has no income, impulse control. This is what we know about Judah. He was the cheerleader for throwing Joseph in the pit. Go look it up. He was the one who suggested they sell him into slavery. He was the one who we have stories of him getting drunk, getting messed up with prostitutes, just not a great guy. There's a story between uh, Joseph's story and this story, uh, a story about um, um, Judah and her, his daughter-in-law, kind of a creepy story. Read it, not with your kids, PG-13, M for mature. All right, so, so it's not that kind of story. But here's the real big takeaway at the end of that story. This is what Judah says at the end of that story. He says... Boy, I thought she was unrighteous. She's more righteous than me. You see a waking up in Judah. You see Judah seeing what the loss of Joseph did to his father, and something's going on in Judah. Well, what ends up happening is none of the brothers can talk to the fathers. They're all going to die. And so Judah goes to his father. And now here's the thing about Judah. Judah is not the oldest. Reuben is the oldest, okay? Reuben's not doing what he's supposed to do. Is it Reuben? Anyway, he's not the, I think it might be another one. Anyway, which one was it? What do you know? All right, read your Bible more. You should know this. All right, so, um, like 500 of you here, and you're, I don't really know. All right, so here's the deal. I'm sorry, that was terrible. Um, terrible, terrible mean. The point is, the older brother was the one who should have gone forward. But the older brother already has shown that he's not willing to take risks. He's not willing to risk because he wasn't willing to stand up for Joseph in the first place. And so Judah goes to his father and he says, Father, here's the deal. We are going to die. And someone needs to step up. Someone needs to lead. And this is the guarantee. We can't go back to Egypt without Benjamin. Give me Benjamin. Listen, Dad, I will not come back alive without that kid. Okay, I will do anything I need to do to bring that kid. And so Jacob says, got no hope. Anyway, go ahead. And, you know, it's better for, you know, and just, uh, just, you know, bring him back. And so they travel there, and sure enough, they get there. And Joseph again sees his brother. One of the things when you read this story that will stun you is how emotional Joseph is. Over and over again, there's recorded just he weeps. He cries, he breaks down. There are times where it says, one of the stories said he actually had to leave the room and wept and wept and wept. And he had to go back and wash his face and get himself together so that he can control himself. There's other stories that his weeping was so profound that people outside the room in the court of Pharaoh heard about it, okay? This is real trauma, this is real pain. And so again, the three levels of the story for Joseph, this is a real story. Just like your pain is a real story. But it's also related to his brothers. It's also related to a bigger story than you could ever imagine. And so now you have Judah who's made this commitment, okay? And so this is what happened. Judah went up to Joseph and said, Oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word to my Lord's ear. Because this is what happened. They went back and Joseph um, uh, greeted them and said, Okay. You're here. Brought the brother back. And so all 12 of the brothers are together. First time in a long time. Awkward Thanksgiving, right? Has him over to the house. 
They're having dinner at his house. The Egyptians had to eat at a separate table. So they come in and they fill Joseph's table with food, right? And he gives a portion from his table, which is a hospitality thing, to each one of the brothers, but he gives five times to Benjamin. Okay, something weird's going on here, okay? Throughout the thing, there's, he's emotional. He's trying to figure it out. He's speaking through an interpreter. They're talking, not realizing that he understands what they're saying. So he hear, he's listening for their heart. He's listening to change. And now he's going to do a little test, okay? And so the test is this. He sends them out the next morning, and he puts the gold back in their bags like before. And then he puts a, a precious cup that had to do with his position uh, as, in a Roman court, uh, Roman court uh, an Egyptian court. And he puts it in the bag of Benjamin. And so they go to the city, sends a soldier after him. Soldiers come back, and, and sure enough, they find the cup. And he says, how wicked, ah, you're terrible. And he says, you know what? I'm going to take this little kid, this Benjamin. I'm going to make him my slave for life. The rest of you can go. The rest of you didn't do anything. But this kid, he's my slave. And then Judah comes up, and he says this. Lord, I, I just want to ask you a question. Um, um, please don't let your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. He says, I get it. I, I recognize who you are. I recognize you have authority. You could get angry, but there's just something. Could I, could I just please say this thing? Now, right there, Joseph knows something different. Something different has happened in Judah, if nothing else, because here's the deal. He's recognizing he's running, risking his life. And Judah and the other 10 brothers have a get out of Egypt free card. He said, I'm just going to keep the boy the rest of you have gone, can go. So what he is testing is after 13 years, they're willing to do now to Benjamin what they did to him by selling him into slavery. And here steps up. Does Reuben step up? No, Simeon, any of them? Nope. It's Judah who steps up. And so Judah, who's been in the interaction with Tamar, Judah, who you see the changes in him, and Judah, who you see the profound change in him, you see it right here. Now watch what he does. He, he says, he, he basically tells him the truth. This is exactly what happened. One of the cool things about the brothers is in all their interactions with Joseph after this, they never lie. And lying is the family thing. They don't manipulate. They, all they're left with is the truth. A change has taken place. What they saw happen in their brother and what life has done to them has brought them to the end of themselves. Now watch this. Now therefore, this is what Judah says. As soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then his life is bound up with the boy's life. As soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servant will bring down the gray, gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Shiro. says, this is going to kill my dad. He said, I cannot go back without this kid. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. He said, I saw what this did before. I thought when we got little, little, little of Joseph, I was just getting rid of the little brat. I had no idea that I would pay for it every day for the rest of my life. Okay, I had no idea what it was going to cost my family and my father and what it would mean. He says, we can't go through that again. And look what happens here with Judas. Absolutely powerful. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back to his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. And so basically what he says is that 13 years ago, I was willing to sell my brother to slavery to get position and place and privilege. Now I'm willing to become a slave to keep that from happening. 
And so Judah is changed. Judah is transformed. You know what the Bible calls that? It calls it repentance. It's this powerful change of perspective, this powerful change of mind that leads to a radical change in life, that you see things totally different now. And because you see things totally different, you are totally different. It changes the trajectory of his life. And this is what we see in Judah as he emerges, listen now, as the leader of the family, as the one who brings and discovers redemption. Now watch this. This is just incredibly powerful. Then Joseph could not control himself before those who stood by him. He cried. The Hebrew word there is to weep, just, un, just unload. Making, he makes everyone goes out for him. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And again, this thing of making yourself known, he's decided, I'm not sure this is completely safe, but I'm going to make myself known. And again, this wisdom, I, I, we could do a series on this, of figuring out how to interact with people you're not sure are safe. There's a lot of wisdom in the example of Joseph. Another sermon, another day. Verse 2. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. So that's the kind of deep feelings we have. And Joseph said to his brother, I am Joseph. Here I am. I reveal myself. Can you imagine the first time he spoke in Hebrew? And he said, wait, what? Wait, what? Wait, what? I have a nephew who says it all the time. Wait, what? You know, wait, what? Yeah, it's a wait, what moment, okay? I am Joseph. My father, is he still alive? But his brothers could not answer him because what could they say? Sorry. My bad. Not my best choice, okay? Sorry that everything horrible and hard and bad that happened to you is our fault. What could they say? Have mercy on us? How could you ask for mercy in the face of this kind of power and authority? For they were dismayed at his presence. It's, it's a fear. It's actually almost a, a, a holy fear. Watch this. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me. See the invitation for intimacy and closeness and grace and mercy and compassion. It's the most beautiful thing. He says, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. He said, I was the slave. I'm the one. It's just as you see it. It's as bad as it seems. You're as vulnerable as you seem to be. He says this though. And now do not be distressed or even angry with yourself. He provides a pathway for them to find forgiveness from God, forgiveness for, for, from him. And look at this, forgiveness for themselves. He says, it's not going to be any value for you to be distressed or angry. We're going to put this behind us, okay, with yourselves. Because you sold me here. For God sent me here before you to preserve life. Watch this now. Judah, your are uh, Stop that. Don't, don't look at that. So, so, so he comes back. And, and he has the three levels of story perspective, right? He said, this happened to me. And that was real. That was raw. And I weep about it. And I felt every bit of it. And I thought about living for revenge. But listen, the only person who's really just, we think getting revenge will be satisfying and freeing. It's just another way of hurting yourself. It's another way of enslaving yourself. You know, we, we, we think that, that, you know, if we could just have that, that pound of flesh, that'd be what we want. But he's understand, that's, that's not my path. My path is redemption because I have this perspective of my story that's also, oh, this was bigger than me. This is about saving the family and actually saving Egypt. And, and Egypt was the breadbasket of the Middle East. And so this would have meant hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives being saved. 
And, and, and here's the deal. It's not only this, is that there's a bigger story. We could show that jo- jo- Joseph knows because of the prophecy about his bones being taken back out, out, out of Egypt. I haven't got time to chase that. But he knew <coughs> this was a bigger story than just his story, even bigger than his family's, even bigger than the nation that would come from his family. He said, God was in this, and this had to happen in this way. He said, so, so come near me, and, and we'll experience this healing together. And so what ends up happening, they experience this healing. He says, go get dad. They get dad. Pharaoh finds out, gives him the best land in Egypt. They're all there, embracing the father. Incredible picture. It's just this incredible picture of healing and redemption. The healing shares with the family. But here's the deal. There's this kind of obscure little passage towards the end of, 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 of Genesis where Jacob, the father of Joseph and the 12 brothers, calls each one of the, the boys there, and he says a word of blessing slash not so much blessing, almost curse. Blessing, kind of curse, which is a prophetic word about which each one of these, these, these tribes that will come from these 12 people will be and what their destinies will be. What's interesting is what he says about Judah. Now remember everything we know about Judah. Okay? Started bad, weak, low character. He was the guy on the wide road that lead to destruction. Joseph was the guy on the narrow road that led to life. Joseph making good choices, following God up and to the right. Judah was on the path that was just low character, okay? But at some point he stopped and said, this is dumb. If I keep going there, I'm gonna go to destruction. And at some point he turned and he became something else, okay? Repentance. Look what the prophecy for it says to, of Judah. He says, Judah, Now, again, you would have expected this blessing to come to the firstborn, to Reuben, or to Joseph, the good one. Right? Okay? But this comes to Judah. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son will bow down before you. He says, Judah, you're going to be the warriors. You're going to be the leaders. You're going to be the one who dominate enemies from you, not you, from your people. You're going to be that tribe that leads the way. You are leading the way now, and you're leading the way, and your tribe's coming. So it's all setting that up. See how all this is layered in in the literary masterpiece that is the Bible? It's glorious. It's beautiful. Watch this. Judah, and this is the rest of the thing. His Judah is a lion's cub from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness who dares to rouse him and the scepter shall not depart from Judah. So this is basically what he's saying in this prophecy. He's saying, listen, Judah, you know what? You're a lion cub. Just a cute little lion, play cuddly, but that lion's gonna grow into something big. And it's going to roar. It's going to be like a lioness. And, and the truth is, lionesses, particularly with cubs, are a lot more fierce than lion. A male lion will run more than a female lion. That's probably true with people, too. Anyway, the, 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 maybe. Anyway, the point is this. Is he's saying, from you, Judah, is going to come something that's going to roar. And indeed, what we find is that from Judah, eventually what happens is they go to Egypt. They're good in Egypt. Then they become slave 400 years. Moses comes, let my people go. Judges roll in. Then they have like hundreds of years of judges. And then finally, the people say, we want a king. And long story short, what happens is they choose a king, first king, second king, the real king, is a guy by the name of David, who's from the town of Bethlehem, who is of the tribe of... Judah, okay? Now, from these kings comes the lines that continue. And ultimately, one of the descendants of the kings is this guy by the name of Joseph, this other lady by the name of Mary. Mary and Joseph have this baby named Jesus who is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
And so the prophecy didn't come from the firstborn, didn't come from the good one. And this is true of Jesus' whole genealogy. He takes the redeemed. He takes the ones who were off, who get back on trap, and he makes them into just this incredible picture of redemption. And so redemption comes through Judah, who finds his voice, finds his courage, is willing to serve by sacrificing and taking on, make me the slave, not my brother. It's a incredible picture of redemption. So if you've been in this whole series saying, you know what, I'm glad Joseph did so well. I ain't done well. Okay. Well, welcome. Let me introduce you to Judah. Because I tell you what, in my life, truth be told, I'm a lot more like Judah than I am like Joseph. I have been off, been down the wrong road, but I just at one point realized I got to turn around. I got to turn to Christ. When you turn to Christ, you turn back. And here's the thing. Judah and Joseph meet and make this most redemptive, beautiful things. And very often, the most powerful things come from people who've been on the wrong road, on the wrong tracks, just not doing great. Amanda's story, talking about her cousin and the redemption that came to him, through her, now through him to others, that's God's story. That's what he's doing. And that's the, the healing of Judah and the lion of the, the, lion and, uh, 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 lion of the tribe of Judah. Now watch this. This is the place of God. This is what we need to understand about Judah, about Joseph, and about what this story is all about. So again, there's Joseph's story, there's a redemptive story of the family that's gonna become the nation of Israel, and then there's a much bigger story above this. Now watch this, the story of redemption for all of us. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So this is, this is old thinking. This is a return to the old way of thinking of the family where they're saying, you know what? Joseph's been really nice to us just because dad's alive. I bet he's going to be a jerk again, but he's going to kill us. And, and here's the deal. They start telling themselves a story. They create a narrative based on past experience. And this is what trauma will do. This is what family dysfunction will do that they were in danger, that none of it was real, that the healing's not real, the path I'm on's not a healing path, that, that it can't be true. And, and here's the deal. Do you realize that most of us in life suffer way more from the things we imagine than the things that actually happen to us? Let me just say that again. Most of us suffer more from the things we imagine than the things that actually happen to us. And that's exactly what's going on with these brothers. And so what they do is they fall back on that old pattern of manipulation and they write the worst letter in the world to Joseph. So they sent a message to Joseph, didn't even go and talk to him, okay? And I tell you what, this had to sting for Joseph. Watch this. Saying, your father, remember dad, gave this command before he died. He, dad, dad said he wanted me to tell you something, okay? All right? Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sins. And Joseph said, I, I did. Because they did evil. Yeah, we've been through that past tense. And now please forgive the transgressions of your servants, of God, of your father. Okay, so now they bring in God into this. So God will want you to forgive me. Okay, they're playing games. They're twisting, they're turning. They don't have confidence in the goodness of Joseph and the reality of the forgiveness that they've been living in for a long time. Look what it said. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. They broke his heart. He says, you guys don't get it. You don't realize what I've been through and what you've been through. And, that, that, and again, it's a re-traumatizing when these things come back up. That's the nature of trauma. It sneaks up on us. It finds its foothold again. And, and what you have now is Joseph putting it all in perspective. Watch this. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. We're willing to be slaves. You know, please don't kill us. But Joseph said to them, 
Do not fear, okay? How often do we, out of fear, tell ourselves a story, fall back to old patterns of manipulation and deceit? So much wisdom in this. Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. You know what he says? Listen, you understand. I, I, you mentioned God, but I'm second in command to Pharaoh. And, and I have the authority, I have the power to judge, to destroy, or to forgive. He says, and I recognize I have all that power. Look what he says. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about, about that many people should be kept alive even as they are today. He says, you don't understand. It's one of the most famous things, probably the most famous thing Joseph said, but what you intended for evil, God intended for good. He, he said, I, listen, I got all three perspectives of the story. This hurt me. And I wanted to act on that, but I recognized it was bigger than me. It was about you and about dad and our family, about the nation that would come. But it's about even something really big. It's about the millions who will be saved by my administration in Egypt, by growing enough grain to save the world. But it's a bigger story that's going to come through us. It goes back to the promise of Adam and Eve, the promise to Abraham that was in danger because of our family dysfunction, that needed something profound to change it deeply. See, this is one of the things we need to understand, that when family dysfunction is that deep, it takes usually someone who goes through profound trauma and rises above it to bring redemption to a family, to change patterns. And this is what you're seeing in Joseph. This is the most profound thing, that you meant it for evil, but God had bigger plans for all three of these stories that my life is telling. So do not fear. I will provide for you. Look at this, and your little ones. The most important things to you. I care about your individual stories. We're part of a bigger story. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now let me just ask you a question. When you think of Joseph in this story, who do you think about? It's church, so it's the answer you think. Jesus! It's a picture of Jesus. This is a foreshadowing. Theologians call this a type or, or a prophetic utterance of what is to come. This is meant immediately in our New Testament to make us think of the one who sits in the place of God, one who is the favored son of a, a privilege who stepped out of that into, into slavery and into prison and, and who went through great evil that people intended for evil, but that God intended for good and who now sits at the right hand of the most powerful God Almighty and has the ability to bring judgment or grace. This is Jesus who has said to us when we came back and were speechless because we were caught and we were guilty and we were afraid and there was nothing we had to offer him. We had no words. And he said, don't worry, be comforted. This is a place of grace. This is a place of forgiveness. This is a place of mercy. And for those of us who follow Christ, we receive it. And I don't know about you, but, but it has taken years and I still forget and I forget that he meant what he said, because I will get like Joseph's brother, I will get, did he really mean it? I mean, did he really? I know he said he'd forgive others, but maybe I slipped in and he didn't expect that, and now he's like, oh, I gotta forgive this one too. You know, maybe he's got favorites, and I'm not one of those. You know, I, I grew up in a narrative of rejection. I just know he's gonna reject me. You know, I, I just grew up in a, a narrative of performance. I know I gotta do more to earn this or to keep it. You don't understand. I gotta, I gotta go to him and I gotta bring some dead sacrifice up to an altar and lay it on there to make up for what the cross was not sufficient to give me. And I need to go to him and I need to say, oh, please, please, um, I'm sorry again. And he says, what are you talking about? When you ask forgiveness the first 20 times, I threw that behind my back. 
I, I threw it in the sea of forgiveness. I, I threw it as far as the east is from the west. I, I, I separated you from it. That is no longer who you are. And I've sent my Holy Spirit, and I'm changing you. You're not where you should be, but we're going to get there. And, and you know what? You will never again be an enemy or, or, or a sinner or, or worthless or, or rejected or an alien. You are my child. There's nothing you can do to get it, to add to it, to keep it, to sustain it. Because any time you do, you're saying, God, I'm not sure I trust what you said. I'm not sure I trust your goodness. I'm not sure the cross is enough. So when we're in that place where we're worried that God doesn't love us, it is not for us to power up and to prove it and find the right words and do the good things or help someone out or shame ourselves. Some people say, I gotta feel bad enough about myself. And then he'll, he'll realize how humble I am and he'll accept me. Shame is a waste of time because of the cross. Instead of doing any of that, what we need to do is we need to run back to the cross and cling to it again and say, this is my hope. Jesus, it is not my obedience. It's your goodness. It's not, it's not anything I do. It's who you are and what you've done for me on the cross. I need to run back to that. And Joseph is a picture of that. See, Joseph's life tells three stories. It tells his story that we can relate from and grow from and take all kinds of wisdom from. It tells the story of something bigger than ourselves, his family and this nation. It teaches us that the real joy, happiness, and meaning in life is when you find something to live for bigger than yourself. And you are willing to go through really painful times. You're willing to delay gratification and wait and suffer to do that. But it also connects us with the ultimate story, what, what theologians call the meta-narrative, the narrative above all other narratives that tells us that, man, this is a story of redemption. This is a story of forgiveness. This is the story of all stories. It's the story of Jesus. And so... This is why we have communion, right? Communion is a retelling of the story. It's all about remembering what has happened. It's all about rediscovering the gospel. It's about re-preaching the gospel to ourselves. It's about re-believing in the gospel. It's about having the courage to let go of shame narratives because you know what? That's not who I am anymore. It's about giving up self-performance to earn God's love and acceptance. It's about dragging dead sacrifices to a useless altar when a perfect sacrifice where he said it is finished has been offered. And so this communion is Jesus's gift for us to rediscover. I'm going to go ahead and invite the ushers to come forward and to prepare communion. And, and, and I just want to tell you the story of communion because it's the, the story of the meta-narrative. On the night before he died, Jesus gathered his disciples together and he said, oh, I have eagerly desired to share this with you. He said, this is my heart. This I've told a lot of stories in the Bible, but this is the big story. Every story leads to the Jesus story, the, the meta-narrative. You know, there's, there's one character that is in every story of the Bible. You know who that is? It's God. And more specifically, it's actually Jesus. He is the hero of every story. He is what it all leads to. It starts, ends, and, and, and everything in the middle is all about God. He is the hero of the story. And, and he said, eagerly desired to share this to you. He says, something's going to happen. He says, I'm going to give up my life. And so I'm going to give you this memorial, this ceremony to remember, to remember, to re-preach the gospel, to recenter, to embrace it all over again, to center myself. And this is true whether or not you're in your personal story where you're just overwhelmed right now. You got something so big. This is true whether or not your, your, your question of meaning, something's going on with your kids or your job or some other thing. You thought this I thought was the place and now you put me in prison or you put me in a pit. I, you know, or, or this is just where you've begun to lose confidence that God could ever possibly love you. 
wherever you're at, this is a re-preaching of that, a rediscovering that, of coming back to that, that in the midst of everything going on, that there's a sovereign God who the things that are going on in my life might be about me, might be about something bigger than me, or might be connected to something related to the gospel that is so much more eternal than I could ever imagine. And I don't understand. You know what? And I'm just going to have to trust you. You may not even understand until you get to heaven. I don't know that Judah understood what the lion thing was all about because he wasn't going to have kings for like 500 years coming from him. Okay? And so, but it was bigger than him. It was cosmic. It was, it was transcendent. And, and so, 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 so this is what we're going to do. So Jesus gathered his disciples. He said, he took the bread. He said, this is my body. He said, I know you've been broken, but my body's going to be broken so you can be whole. When you do this, when you eat this bread, remember me, that I've given you full and complete redemption and forgiveness. There's nothing you can do to complete it or add to it or, or nothing you can do. It's done. He says, do this to remember me so you don't forget that. He said, oh, and this is the cup. He says, this is the cup of the new and the everlasting friendship, relationship, the, the, the cup of the everlasting covenant. It's a new way of relating to God. It says, because of Christ, because of what he did, not because of what you do, okay? Because you put your faith and trust in him, you are no longer stranger, alien, enemy. You are now called friend of God. You are now called child of God. You are called brother of Christ. You are one who has a destiny and a future of glory and hope. The Holy Spirit has been deposited in you. The old is gone and the new has come because everything God is doing in the mega narrative, the big narrative, ends in the book of Revelations where it says, behold, I'm making all things new. That's your destiny. And when you have communion and you rediscover the cross in Christ, you, you re-preach that to yourself. You rediscover that. You just recenter yourself on that because that's who you are. And so as we have communion today, we are remembering that. So here's the deal. Uh, we don't believe here at Jacob's Well that anything mystical or magical happens to the elements here. We believe the really important thing happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ died on the cross. And you may say, can I have communion? I don't come here. I'm not a member or whatever. Here's the deal. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you believe that he really lived, he walked on earth, he was born of a virgin, he, he really taught us a better way to live, he died on a cross, he rose from the dead, and you put your faith and trust in him and his life, you are a follower of Jesus, a believer in Jesus, then you are a brother and sister, you are, you are part of the, the people of God, the church of God, the great church of God, and we invite you to come to communion, even if this is your first time here. And so anyone's welcome. The ushers are going to dismiss you by rows. Uh, if you um, want to stay where you're at, not come forward, you can just wave and they will, um, they will uh, bring you elements to you. Everything here is prepared gluten-free, so you don't have to worry about that. We're very careful how we do that so we can all have communion together. And this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity for you to re-believe the gospel rediscover the gospel. Preach it to your weary soul. Preach it to your doubting heart. Preach it to your beat-up spirit that I believe in Jesus. I believe in the cross. And, and just to run back to him, Jesus, I still have nothing to offer you. I have nothing to offer you, but I believe the cross is enough. It's my only hope. And, and the freedom in that, the joy in that, and expect him to do what Joseph did to his brother. Speak tenderly to you, comfort you, and to meet you in this experience of communion. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the miracle of your word and the glory of your plan. And when Joseph was in prison in the pit, he could never imagine how much bigger than him this was. Father God, when he was a 17-year-old with a dream and thought that dream would be about his privilege, he didn't recognize that it was not about his privilege. It was about his opportunity to serve and, and to be part of something so glorious. Help us to see that.
Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gospel, the truth that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. Before we could offer him anything, while we were still bankrupt in our sin and dead, Christ Jesus died for us and he called us. And that when we come to him, we are given forgiveness. We are made children of God. And when we lose confidence in that, he doesn't lose confidence in it. He doesn't throw us away. And so those times we try to add to it, maximize it, prove we earned it, whatever. We set aside all that foolishness and like a child running to its father, we just run. We expect you to take us in your arms and welcome us home. We receive this bread as a symbol, as a remembrance of your broken body. We receive this cup as a remembrance of the friendship, the relationship, the, the love that comes from God through Jesus. And we renew ourselves once again to be your children, your people, and, and people who are loved by you. And we just lift these things up in Jesus' name. Amen.